2 Kings chapter 8 as we continue. There's, um, there's phrases that go like this. It only happens in the movies. That is make-believe stuff or not real-life experience. Here are a few of the things that only happen in TV or in the movies. They go this way and comment. Even when driving down a straight street, the driver's always doing this, moving the car, the steering wheel back and forth. You notice that in movies that are just like they're all over the place. Here's one. It's always possible to find a parking spot in the movies right in front of the building you're going to go to. Only in the movies. Only in the movies when there's a creepy noise going on in a creepy house do people go towards the noise. I would go away. Only in the movies. P medieval peasants have perfectly straight teeth without braces. Only in the movies can anyone land a plane as long as someone in the control tower gives them directions. Only in the movies, bombs are always fitted with large device giving the countdown in big red numbers. Only in movies, cars that crash always burst into flames. Only in movies, a single match is sufficient to light up an entire stadium as far as the, spa the space. Only in the movies, your car keys will always be in ignition when you get in the car or if it's a crisis, you can't get your car keys into the ignition, but only in the movies. In the movies, the Eiffel Tower can be seen from any window in Paris. In the movies, wherever there's a large plane of, pane of glass being moved, somebody's going to go through it or something. Only in the movies, most every grocery bag contains that one le at least one stick of that French bread sticking out. Only in the movies. Ventilation systems are always big enough for anyone to hide in them and to move to any part of the building. And the grates always pop off. There's no problem whatsoever. Only in the movies. Any and every lock can be picked with a credit card. Now, I understand MacGyver, but everybody else can do it as well, only in the movies. Every garage in a spooky movie is filled with multiple chainsaws. Only in the movies, TV stories always play the one topic, the one news bulletin, just when the actors are talking about it. Only in the movies, whenever the cab driver is being paid, people just grab money out of their wallet and give it to them and never check how much it is. Only in the movies, whenever the heroes and martial arts fight, the others will dance around. But they never attack in numbers, they only wait until the other one's been knocked out and they come one at a time. Only in the movies, men show no pain whatsoever while taking a ferocious beating, but when the woman touches the wound with something to cleanse it, he winces in pain. Only in the movies, whenever a town is threatened by disaster, the mayor is always crooked and corrupt and wants to have nothing done to stop the tourist trade. Only in the movies, all those goofy things happen. In 2 Kings chapter 8, we're talking about real life stuff. It's not a make-believe story. It's not a TV story. It's not a fictional story. These are real stories. And they portray real events as well as real-life principles. And they're strange. Some of the story, what we're going to read this evening, doesn't make sense. Why they're given a certain command or how certain things unfold. But then in this account that we read in the, the account in chapter 8 of Elisha continuing his ministry, there are some real profound truths that are major realities of life. Let me, let me share with you what I'm talking about. We start the story in 2 Kings chapter 8 with going back to a person we've read about before. Her story came up four chapters earlier. She's the woman who, she and her husband, she was called a great woman. They lived in the city of Shunem, which is one of the Ephratite cities that were in the northern part of Israel. And so she's called a Shunammite, not because she is an, a foreigner, but she is from the city of Shunem. Jewish background, she and her husband had lived there, and she is the one that they had created a 
pre, uh, uh, prophet's chamber, and they had engaged with having uh, Elijah come by, and uh, Elisha come by, and had the house available to him. She was able to uh, be able to bear a child. A few years later, the child collapsed in the field, and Elisha goes and lays upon the child, and the child's restored to life. This is the woman several years later. And as the story becomes, that comes about, what happens is a famine is striking the land. We talk about a famine and attack. This is a different famine. It's coming into Israel. And Elisha tells this woman about the famine, and he warns her there's going to be a severe famine. You need to leave the area. They've got a bond. They've got a tie because of the ministry back and forth to each other. And so at the time that he's telling her this, she's a widow woman. She's in charge of taking care of her child. And it says the household. So she is being given this information. She's told, you need to leave the land of Israel and go and live somewhere else. It doesn't specify. Look at the verses. doesn't specify where. But leave this area and go away for seven years. And live in the land. And she ends up choosing the land of the Philistines. And at the end of the seven years, she's coming back. And the, the stories tie together really in a phenomenal sense. She has decided to come back at the end of the seven years. Israel is recovered from the famine. And as she comes back, she has in her mind, I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to ask if I can get my inheritance back. We've been gone. We've kind of just left the land. And now we don't know what happened to the land per se. And so I'm going to go to the king's palace. I'm going to say, can I get my husband's property restored to me? And uh, we can take over this family inheritance. And so while that is happening, it's, it tells us that scene, and then it flips into the next few verses, and it says, while she is headed for the palace, so to speak, there's something going on in the palace. In the palace, King Joram is talking to somebody. He happens to be having a conversation with Gehazi. Gehazi is called in this text, Elisha's servant. Now, some have a real struggle with this. Some look at the, the critics are amazing how they can get hung up on little things. They say this must not be a true story because Gehazi is no longer the servant of Elisha. And therefore there's a mistake here that he's called the servant of Elisha. That's easily corrected. It could be, it could be that very simply the chronological details are a little bit different. Or let's be honest about it, if, they, if they're re identifying the person, they're keeping what he's been identified before. Uh, let me see if I can illustrate it. What do we call the, the president after he leaves office? What's his title? He's still called the president. And that's a point of identification, a point of recognition. That's all that's happening in the text. And he's saying this person who was meeting was, a, was in fact in the history past, he was Elisha's servant. He isn't in that employee right now, but he's there. And so they're having the conversation and the king, is in, he's intrigued by Elisha and the stories of Elisha. And he says, tell me some stories. Did these things really happen? Tell me some of the interesting accounts of when you were with Elisha. What kind of things did he do? Fascinating character. I want to know a little bit about him, what he ministered. And, Eli and Gehazi tells him the story about a Shunammite woman who opened up her home. She was able to bear a child and then the child died and Elisha came and he resuscitated the child through a miracle of God. At that very moment, who walks through the other door? It's the Shunammite woman. And Gehazi points out, he says, oh, by the way, that's the woman. After all these years, he recognizes she's the very woman. The king is intrigued. He asks her basically, are you really the woman? Yeah, yeah, I am. And so we don't know what happens in conversation as far as beyond the king talking to her, whatever. But he is so intrigued, he is so impressed that he tells one of the guards, standing there, he says, make sure 
this woman just makes sure that her land is restored to her. And not only her land, but watch how the text unfolds. You may want to mark this if you haven't marked. The king asked the woman, she told him in verse 6, the king appointed unto her a certain officer. He's going to make sure this takes place because he respects this woman and she's part of the, the uh, legend, the true legend about what's happened with Elisha. He said, restore all that was hers and not only that, but all the fruit of the field since the day she left the land. She wasn't going to ask for everything like that, but she gets a whole lot more from the king than what she had planned to ask for. She gets the inheritance back, plus she gets all the profits that have come from the land, all the fruit for the last seven years. She gets the benefit of the land. And so here you have that story unfolding. That's basically where we're going to kind of stop. What lessons stand out? Can I give you a couple right off the bat? that are realities of life. They are not make-believe. This isn't the movies. This is truism. This is for then and it's for here. God is always at work in our everyday life. A truism. That God is working in big things, in little things, all the time. We call it like the sovereign working of God. We call it the providential working of God. That is not a make-believe. This is a reality of life. That God is working. Let me, let me see if I can just draw your attention back to the story and you think about it. The woman arrives in Israel seven years after she has left the land. And she goes to the, to the palace on a particular day after seven years. The very day, the very hour that Gehazi is in the palace talking about her story and what happened with her and Elisha. The very hour that the king is asking and intrigued by this and getting more details. At the very moment that Gehazi is explaining, she walks in the door. How does that get arranged? How does, it's, it's coincidence. It's just, you know, it just so happened. No, what is indicative of is our God providentially arranges things. We can find this all through scripture. We can find statements that, that imply this truth even more specifically. We know that the passage talks about that all things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. But let's take it a step further. In James, he talks about this. Instead, we ought to be saying, not I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. In other words, if the Lord is moving and allowing certain things to take place in our life, certain plans and events that we want to do, the Lord is working, he's concerned about it. In fact, it says it is God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. He is operating in your everyday thought pattern, everyday life. For God has put it into the hearts, this is prophecy, talking about what God is doing in the future even. He'll put it in the hearts of those who are involved in that tribulation period, that they be of one mind to give the kingdom of the beast until the words of the Lord be fulfilled, that he works in a national level as well as a personal level, that God manipulates, God directs, God orchestrates events. When we were in Boston on Thanksgiving, we met a family, been married a couple of some 60 years, sweet couple, loved the Lord, and as we were talking, I was asking them some questions about how they got together, who chased who, you know, what in their relationship, and it was a very interesting story. She tells about how when she was 11 years old, she was at post-war uh, Italy in, the, in that period of time, 45 to 1950, and it was devastated. There was nothing there. And so her parents were given the opportunity that one of the village people, one of the young, young uh, people in the village, they were pulling their resources together. They were going to send one of them to America to have a better life because staying in the village, they were not going anywhere. At least they could work together as a village and help somebody to better their life. She was the one chosen at 11 years of age. 
She had an aunt and an uncle living in the Boston area, and so she was the choice. The parents and the townspeople said goodbye. They had the celebration for her, and she comes over to America, and a week later after she's here, she wants to go back for obvious reasons. She's 11 years old. Her family's back there, but her aunt and uncle convinced her, if you go back, there's nothing there. Stay in America, stay in America, and maybe we'll be able to get you a rest of your family here, and she ended up staying. And so she says she was going through school, things were working out. She's uh, 16, 17 years of age, and she's finishing up her high school, but she's all then doing some night school and working part-time. So she's in class during the daytime, and in the evening she's working in a restaurant just to keep herself afloat and keep on going. And she said that, you know, we, I, she, this guy comes in with a friend. And he comes in, and he's very interested in her. He's trying to talk to her, and she's not interested. She said, I already have a boyfriend. She says, and, and I'm not really interested in a boyfriend, but I just have some guy that I see once in a while just to say to others, I have a boyfriend. And she, so here she is, she's working, and this young man with his friend, he's very interested. It's cold, it's Boston, it's wintry. And uh, so they talked for a little bit, and then he left. And she says when she got off work that evening, here he was with his friend sitting out there in his car, which she was impressed he had a car, and finding out that here he's sitting there and he's offering a ride home. And she's like, no, no, no. But he talked her into it, and she says he was very nice. He and his friend were extremely nice. They gave her a ride home. And then the next night at work, Again, it was cold, blustery, and so she didn't want to walk, and she didn't want to take the, the tram or whatever. He showed up again. So she decided to ride with him the next night, and then the next night, and for the next several weeks in a row, up to three months, I think she said, that he would show up almost every night and give her a ride home for work. Now, to add to this story, she said, I'm starting to get interested in this guy. He's a real sweet guy. He's really kind, and he treats me with great respect, and I'm really interested in him. And she says, but there was something that I didn't know about. She said, my mother had told me, never, ever, ever marry a redhead. She said, from, from little on, my mother drilled it in us. Do not marry a redheaded person because redheaded people are... See all the different things that are talked about for redheaded people. And she's, so she said, my mother drilled it into us kids. And she said, so I determined my life, I would never, ever date a redheaded person. And so she said, because I heard all about their tempers and different things like that. And so she says, I'm dating this guy. And she said, it was cold. It was always in the evening that we saw each other. And he always had a hat on. She says, I never saw him in bright light without a hat. And she says, so I'm really interested after the three months and all this kindness. And finally, he took his hat off. And he is redheaded. But she says, I've really gotten to like him. In fact, they liked each other that I think it was three months later they're married. Uh, it was a short period of time. And so, we, so we, my question was, well, what did your mom say? She said, I never told her. So, well, you know, in 60 years, she's got to find out that he's ready. She says, I never told her. What about the wedding pictures? She said, we sent pictures, but they were in black and white. My mother never knew until she visited, and the visit was 10 years later. But we joked about it, we laughed about it, you know, such a, such a funny story. And the man making the comedy says, isn't this amazing how God provided, and he says, I usually didn't wear a hat, but it was always cold and windy. Can God manipulate weather in a certain way to just orchestrate events and situations? I believe God can do that. Now, in that sense, that's what's happening in this passage, that all of a sudden you have this happening with the woman. It's no mistake the family that you're in. 
It's no mistake when you think about it that God puts you in a certain neighborhood to minister to certain people. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that God all of a sudden gives you interest at times or puts you in schools or institutions where you get certain training that he can use or you get this idea that, that I really might have uh, some interest in playing this instrument that God can use later on that you're, unpre you're not even thinking about but the Lord works. Putting you in your job putting you there at that place, at that moment, with, with that encounter with some people. God's not making mistakes to put you in financial situations that might increase your trust in Him, your reliance upon Him. Our Lord isn't making mistakes when He's given the kids that, that you have in your home. There's no accident. God knows and entrusts and says, you're the one that can do the best job for those kids. Our God works in those ways that, that the Lord all of a sudden brings new people into your lives. It could be a classmate. It could be somebody that all of a sudden you run into in, in the neighborhood or at work or at school. That God is orchestrating events that could create an opportunity for you to be able to minister to somebody that others couldn't. God is always working in our lives every single day. Can you give me another principle that stands out from this woman's story? God always rewards obedience. He always rewards obedience. Here's the odd one in this story. The odd part, part of obedience is this woman lifts, listens to the prophet. But what's strange is what the prophet told her to do. The prophet, as she said, is told by, it tells this woman to leave Israel. That is abnormal. That is not the, the common practice. But because of what is happening, she's gotten the counsel, leave for just a short period of time. And she does it even though it's the idea of a Jewish woman leaving the territory or a Jewish, a Jewish family leaving the territory, she isn't told specifically where to go, just leave the region, but she goes. She is going where she's going to be leaving everything that's familiar, family, neighbors, friends, that she has been with for several years at least, since she's been married to her husband, since she's raised her child, who was probably a teenager when he collapsed. And so it's been several years that she's established in this community, She's leaving the security of her inheritance. She's giving up her social security pension as a Jew. She's leaving that property that she doesn't know if she's going to have when she gets back. She has to go to the king when she gets back to see if she can regain it. And so she's leaving all this familiarity, going to a strange land, which right away, language and customs. And on top of it, it's the Philistines' land. It's the people that are traditional enemies, people that you would want to avoid. So she stays away for seven years at the direction of the prophet. We don't know how she survived. We don't know what she did with her household. But she obeyed what the, what the uh, prophet told her to do, which is a strange situation. She does exactly what he says, and it, what's the result? When she comes back into the property and the story is told, God rewarded her obedience by restoring to her the land and gave her more than what she was asking for by giving her the profit of the seven years. Why is it that the Lord blessed, what she, blessed her in that regard? Because she was obedient. She did what she was told. And it was odd. It was strange. But she did what the prophet told her to do. Does God bless obedience in that same way today? I believe he does. I believe God blesses people who are obedient when they're told to forgive somebody, and it's very hard, it's very difficult. <clears throat> when you are told that you're supposed to do a family duty of guiding and directing and submitting and teaching and training and, and disciplining or honoring or giving respect, when you're doing your duty that God has required you to visit the widows and the orphans, when you're doing your duty to guard the words that you say, 
when you're doing your duty to read the Word of God, to pray, when you're doing your duty to worship and to get involved with it, to do your duty that you contribute now, not last year but the, or next year, but this year. Contribute to the ministry where you're helping other people. When you're doing your duty <coughs> as something is so simple to being baptized, giving out the Word of God, God blesses obedience. He rewards it. He gives the people's blessings in their life as they reward. Let me give you a third, a third principle, a reality of life that's not the movies. God is always aware what's going on. He is always aware of what's going on around him and, and in our lives. Not only is he active, and not only does he reward our obedience, but he is aware of our situation. Watch how this unfolds. The king that is not in Israel, but the king Ben-Hadad in Syria, the enemy, the antithesis, the one who attacked that we talked about this morning, who led the siege. It says in the next verse, in the, as the story goes along in verse 7, it says that Elijah, Elisha, is just happening to be traveling towards Syria. And he's headed towards Damascus. We know that this is orchestrated by God. And he's moving towards Damascus, and that's the capital where Ben-Hadad is ruling. Ben-Hadad is sick. Look at verse 7. He's ill. He's, uh, he, he's scared. He doesn't know if he's going to recover, so it must be a serious illness. And so Ben-Hadad hears that Elisha, by the way, this tells you the fame of the prophet. As he travels, you know, there's some groupies, there's somebody passing the word along. And he hears that Elisha is nearby. So Ben-Hadad sends one of his court, court workers. His name is Hazael. He sends Hazael on a trip to say, Hazael, I want you to go and find Elisha and ask him something. And so he's, you know, ask God what's going to happen to me. Ask the Lord what, what's, you know, is, can he give me information? Am I going to survive? Can he tell me if I'm going to die? This is a clear passage that God is totally aware. Now, sometimes we think God is old. Sometimes we think that maybe God is like us, that as we get older, we kind of get forgetful. We kind of lose track of what's going on. We have some form of senility or dementia. Maybe God is like that and God's forgotten about me. I was reading a couple different, different clips that this fellow is bemoaning the fact it's not that we forget something completely, but it's the idea that I remember that I've forgotten something so completely. Or here's a couple that says, all dressed up with any slightest idea why. They're not sure where the, why they got all guess, dressed up. Here's one guy that wrote this way, I'm not forget, getting forgetful because I'm old, it's just my brain is so full already. Now that's one way to excuse it. But sometimes we think God's brain is full. And God has forgotten about me. That's not true. That is not true that God is not aware. God knows everything about you. God remembers everything about you. God knows your, your situation today, not, just not last week, but today, tomorrow. It says the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing, the Lord is fully aware of that. I know that you can do all things. No thought can be held back from you. We read elsewhere in Scripture, he shall, that shall he not search out? He knows the secrets of your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're intending. He knows your purposes. He knows your plans. It says the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his goings. The Lord is fully aware. We read elsewhere, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Now how does that portray in this passage? Hmm, interesting. 
how much God knows that what happens, as we said, that, that he's ill, Haziel is sent to go and talk to the prophet, the messenger gets there, and he is talking to Elisha and says, my master sent me to ask you a question. Okay? And we read in the account how Haziel's come prepared to persuade the prophet in order to give some of the information that it says in verse 9, Haziel went to meet Elisha, took a present with him, even the every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels burden. So he's gone going with a big load of gifts. And it goes on, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, hath sent me, saying, shall I recover from the disease? Elisha said to him, "This is now watch how it unfolds. He says, go say to him, you may recover, you certainly recover. How be it, the Lord hath showed me that he's going to die. That's not a contradiction. That's not a conflict of what he's saying. What he's telling him is, you're going to recover from this disease, but shortly thereafter, you're going to die of something else. Okay, I know, I know what's happening in your body with this disease, but I also know what's going to happen with something else that's going to take your life. Then the passage says, Elisha looks at Hazael, and he stares at him. And he's piercingly looking into the heart of Hazael. And then he bursts into tears. And Hazael's kind of surprised. In fact, look at the verse, look at where it talks about, the next verse or two. When Elisha is staring at Hazael, what does Hazael do initially? He becomes so uncomfortable that what's it say? That all, as we look down through, it says, he said he settled his countenance steadfastly until Hazael was ashamed. And then the man of God starts weeping. And so Elisha is, he's staring, he's looking, and he knows something about Hazael. That Hazael doesn't want anybody else to know about, apparently. And Hazael says to the prophet, he says, why are you weeping? Because I know what you are. I know what you're going to do. You are going to bring great trouble upon the land of Israel. The Jews are going to suffer immensely because of you, who you're going to do something to them. And he basically tells them what he think, what's going to happen here in the next few verses, that he tells them, here's what I know about you. He says, I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds will you set on fire. Their young men will you slay with the sword. You will dash their children. You will rip the women who are with child. And Hazael says, what? Am I a servant, a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha said, the Lord has showed me that you are going to become king over Syria. And he departs from Elisha and comes to his master. In other words, Hazael is going to somehow get the throne from Ben-Hadad. And Hazael at first says, no, it's not true. Hazael obviously has thoughts of taking over from Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is weak. Ben-Hadad is sickly. Hazael has in his mind, I'm going to take the throne. This is my moment. I'm going to make my move. And the prophet is aware of it. And he mentions it, that you're going to become the king. And Hazael is, he's, he's caught off guard. He's, his, his plot is, un, is uncovered. God knew. God knew exactly what is going on in his life. And so he, he's, he's basically saying, you're going to kill your master. You're going to take his life. And Hazael is all upset about this. And Hazael, by the way, in the next few verses say, he goes back to his king. He goes to Ben-Hadad. And it's interesting the phrasing that it, that, it, uh, that it uncovers. I'm not sure about some of you have different translation. But it says, it came to pass on the next day, 
that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face, Ben-Hadad's face, so that he died. This is what most scholars think has happened. That in ancient days they'd have mosquito nets, that they would use some type of fabric. And what they would do in order to keep the, the bugs from getting through these nets is they would dip them in water. And so often the servant taking care of the king, the one who was doing personal care of the king, that they would help do this, get this wetted down. But when Hazael, who was pretending to be helping the king out, taking care of his physical needs, remember he's sick. He's, you know, he's weak in that sense, but he's recovering from that disease. But all of a sudden he is putting up this net, he's pretending to care for the king, but then he takes it, and with that net he strangles, suffocates the king kills him with this very, if can I use the word mosquito net, that's moist, and takes the king's life to usurp him. And so what you have in this situation is God knowing everything. God knew of Ben-Hadad's illness. God knew he would recover from that illness, but he also knew that he would die soon from something else. God knew how he would die. God knew that Hazael was craving power that Hazael was corrupt internally, that he was a usurper. God knew that he would personally take the life of his authority over him. God knew that Hazael, how he would rule, how that when he was on the throne, exactly what kind of orders he would do. In fact, there's something that's interesting that comes out of extra-biblical literature that talks about Hazael at this time, that even the people of Syria were disgusted with Hazael, one of the records that we have from the Syrian government of that time period talks about Hazael being a good-for-nothing commoner who becomes king, was their statement. And so they even recognized that, you know, as time goes by, that he was lousy not only for the Jews but for Syria as well. He wasn't a good king. And Elisha knew this. Elisha knew that he would cause much heartache, that he would cause much pain to a lot of people. This is all aware of God all aware to the Lord that he was fully aware of everything. Think with me for a moment. If God knows everything about us, we have no reason to try to hide some secret sin from God. God is fully aware of that. That should prompt us to purity. That should prompt us to confession. That should prompt us to be right with the Lord. If God knows everything going on around us and all of our lives, we have every reason to trust him because he knows our needs. He knows exactly our strengths, our weaknesses. If God knows everything, then that means this reality of life is we should trust the Lord for the provisions he gives us because he knows what we need when we need it. If in the reality of life, God knows everything, God knows your strengths, he knows our weaknesses as well. He knows what we, what we should do, what we shouldn't do in order to be stronger in the Lord. So he might bring things into our life to help us to grow because he knows this is an area you need. This is an area I need. If we conclude that God knows everything, then we must also conclude that God knows the help I need to overcome temptation, to overcome some of the difficulties in my life. If we really believe this reality, it should have an impact in our lives. That is not just a theological assent that we make, but rather we are saying, I trust you. I don't hide from you. I want to be right with you. I need to rely upon you more. I'm going to give you praise for what you provided for me. I'm going to be thankful that you orchestrated things to put me in this home with these parents, with these siblings, because this was good for me. Those are the realities of this text. Can I give you another reality? Number four. 
Godly people, here's out of this text, godly people are always concerned about God's people. How do I know that? When Elisha is in conversation with Hazael, his motivation is he is moved. He has moved in this text to weeping. The man of God is openly broken to the point of weeping because when Hazael asks, he is really upset and concerned about the people of Israel. He is saying, you're going to do them harm. Now, mind you, Israel might deserve some of the, some of the judgment that Hazael will bring later on because they've made lousy choices. We talked about that this morning. And yet he doesn't gloat. The man of God doesn't gloat and say, give it to him, God. God, smack them down. Oh, I'm glad that they're going to have their, the pregnant woman are going to be slain and the babies torn out from their system, as he describes in this text that we read already. He is, he's an individual, as a man of God, that he is concerned even about those of his kinsmen in the faith who have struggled, who have backslidden, and he's burdened for them. Now, he's not the only one in Scripture there is a pattern in Scripture that godly people, they're concerned about God's people, even those who are struggling or stumbling in their faith. We can go back to the Old Testament. Abraham was very concerned for Lot. Even when Lot was doing wrong and getting caught up with greed and wanted to take the best of the land, when Abraham heard that he was being attacked by the five kings that had come through, it was Abraham that went to his rescue that he, want, he was burdened for his nephew. He was concerned for them. He had tried to talk him out of choosing to go and live near Sodom and Gomorrah, but when they were captured, he went and rescued them. We have scriptures where Mordecai knows the danger that is coming to the Jewish people. He gets involved. He's concerned. We have passages where Nehemiah hears that back in Jerusalem, the kinsmen, the Jews, they're suffering. They're trying to rebuild and reestablish the town, but they need some help. And as soon as his brother comes back, what's going on? What's going on? He's deeply concerned. You know that even in the Good Samaritan, who Jesus uses as a classic illustration. Here's this non-Jew concerned about God's people and helping somebody out. We have that text where Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He knows they're going to kill him. He knows they're going to de deny him. And yet he is weeping and said, oh, I would have gathered you as a, as a mother hen of chicks. Godly people are burdened. But then you have other saints who are like Jonah that would rather have somebody suffer. They would, they would feel no remorse if all of a sudden somebody got whammied in, in discipline. They don't care. They might give the message. They might hand out a tract. But in their heart, they really don't care. They really don't care about the person in their damnation that could be facing them or destruction. Question, which one do you like? In the way that you respond, in the way that you treat others, in the way you move in order to minister, are you one who has deep, true compassion? Or are you just busy with doing the Christian thing and the heart isn't in it? In this text, the reality of life is Godly people are moved to do something, to act. We find that in the New Testament. If any of you among you seems to be religious and bridles not his tongue, what it is is you look religious, but you really don't care what you say to other people. He says, your religion is vain. Pure and undefiled religion is to reach out to those who are impoverished, those who are hurting, those who are in that lonely mode. That, and it's not just think about them, it's actually doing something. Actually going out of your way. 
When we read in the New Testament, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what is a profit? You say to them, be ye warmed and filled. God bless you, I'm praying for you, but you do nothing. He says, your religion basically is in vain. For faith without works is, that's the passage. That godly people really are genuinely concerned. Talk about somebody who's stumbling, somebody who's hurting, somebody who's done wrong. He that covers a transgression, transgression seeks love, but he that repeats it he has to gossip, has to share with somebody else's fall, somebody else's flaw, somebody else's uh, struggle spiritually. He says, that's just not right. Godly people are genuinely concerned that a brother, he says, is born for adversity. That's the idea that a real friend is going to stick with you even when sometimes you're not so lovely. Even when sometimes you aren't so, re so responsive. And he says that's what you and I should be. We should be that type of person that we love at all times. We genuinely care. That's the principle. Okay? You and I have to ask this question. That's a reality in this text, but is it a reality in your life? Are you an individual who you minister actually you actually go out of your way to befriend people who are searching and seeking. That you really extend yourself to help others out. Instead of just doing the motions of Christianity, just for the sense of being mechanical, is this genuine in your heart? Let me close with this final reality out of this text. Temptations are strong. They are powerful, even for those who know what's coming. Even those who are warned. What I mean by that is this. In this text, Haziel has a conversation with Elisha. They are having an intimate conversation. Haziel's coming, getting information about the king, but Elisha turns it upon Haziel. And he basically says to Haziel, you're going to do some damage. You've got, you've got something going on in your heart that's not right. And Haziel's response is, how can you say that? Am I a dog? Am I that, am I that corrupt? And in essence, Elisha is saying, yes. You have this great potential. You, you, you're headed this direction. And he's basically giving to this man a warning that your treacherous plot is uncovered. That what you think to be doing, what, you're, what you have in your heart isn't right. It isn't proper. And, and if you follow through, things are going to get worse. It's not that you're going to improve. You're going to make things worse in your life and the life of others. You would think that Haziel, at this moment of being exposed, at Haziel, at this moment, being warned of what tragedy he can create if he, if he, if he bites into this cookie, how it's going to affect him, and it's, he's going to want more and more, and it's going to get worse, and he's going to have a tremendous, terrible reputation and, and impact upon people. You would think he would stop and say, I'm not going to do what's in my mind. I'm not going to get involved with that. He's being warned by the prophet of God who he believes is telling him the future because he came on the, on the idea that this is the man of God who can tell us the king's status. He doesn't question Elisha's truthfulness. He doesn't question his, predict, uh, his ability to predict the future. But he doesn't respond by saying, I just got a warning. I'm headed down the wrong road. He doesn't stop, he pursues. He's, he's gone into this, this idea that he's being tempted and he's forgotten how powerful temptation can be. Even for somebody who knows the, what the future holds, who has a warning directly from God, 
Man, on days, greed can take over people's lives. Envy can just all of a sudden consume. Anger can dominate. Bitterness can claim and basically possess a person's heart and their being. Selfishness? Oh, my lands. We struggle with it all the time. And we're warned about it and we're told to stay away from it. But then we dabble and we think, I'm okay. I can handle this. And we forget from Hazael's account, when God warns us, he's doing because he loves us. He's trying to tell us, listen, we are weak creatures. We, we, even, we, we can't just say, well, I know Bible, I know trivia, I know facts. So did Hazael. But he didn't act upon it. He let the temptations continue in his life. Reality comes this way. Temptations come to all of us. If any man here thinks he stands, take heed lest he... We've got to be warned here. Temptations, we're all going to face it. And it's going to happen even though we're saved. One of the parents, and I forget who it is here, that was sharing with me, that they were talking about their kids, their youngster, one of the preschools, made a, made a uh, profession, calling upon Christ to save them from their sin. But then, a few weeks later, the child in conversation with the parents said, it didn't work. And it was like, what do you mean it didn't work? I still sin. The child had this concept that when we ask Jesus to save us from our sin, the child was thinking he will save us from sinning and hadn't got the bigger picture. And for that child, this was dis disconcerting because I prayed to Jesus to save me from sin, but I still am disobeying mom and dad. So it didn't work. Well, that's not that salvation didn't work. They just didn't have the theology right, and that's something the parent has to teach them. Because here's the reality of life. We are saved from the penalty of sin, but we still have to deal with it while we're in this life with the presence and at times with the power of sin upon our life. And we have to resist the temptation. We have to say to the devil, no. And if we resist him, it says he will flee from us. It tells us at the same time that we're to put off those things that are the youthful lusts and the struggles and the, and the trials. Now, we're not supposed to give in. We can be angry, but do not sin. And so we're warned time and time again in scriptures, be careful. Be careful about temptations, but sometimes we get in our haughty mode, we get in our arrogant growth as a Christian, we get into that spot where I can handle this. I won't give in. Hazel knew, but it just consumed. Here's the reality, that being saved doesn't remove all temptations. Just learning more about God's will and God's word doesn't make me immune or you immune from temptation. We can know scriptures, and you are wonderful in studying the Bible to be able to take the truth, but you and I are still struggling with temptation. We need to be careful. We need to remember that when Jesus Christ was here, he who is the closest person to God, he received some of the greatest attacks of temptation. Can we make the observation? that it seems to me that as the closer we walk with the Lord at times, the greater the temptation becomes. The more the, that Satan is more vicious, that Satan is more aggressive, that he wants to get us to fall. So what do we do? That's part of what this is about tonight, this communion service. It's reminding us that God knows everything we need, that God has orchestrated historical events to meet our needs, that God knows that we struggle and he has made provision in the past for the forgiveness of sin but also in the presence 
to help us to overcome sin. One author put it this way. He says, it's useless for us to combat temptation in and of our own selves. So when temptation comes knocking on your heart's door, he put a simple phrase, he said, send Jesus to answer the door. You just pray and you say, Lord, you take care of this. Lord, you do it. Don't you do it yourself. You rely more and more and more upon the Lord Jesus Christ to that we would say, Lord, use this service to remind me about your grace that you have given me, the reality of life. You are my Savior. You are my protector. You are the wonderful, merciful Savior that I want to worship this evening, that I want to be able to praise this evening, that I want to rely upon more and more. Our communion this evening? Let's not think of just about what the Lord has for us in the far distant future or the near future. But let's think about what he's provided for us right now. Forgiveness, strength, fellowship. That's the Christ that we're going to be talking about here in these next few minutes and praying to.